This is Motormania. I'm Damien Reed. It's that time of the week again. It's the only interactive car show on UAE Radio where we give you all the motoring advice. We talk about what's happening in the car world. We let you have your voice on road safety issues and we're going to be keeping you company all the way through until noon. And uh, yeah, we've got some exciting news for you. I'll tell you what, it has been a busy week in the world of motoring. I uh, ducked out and I ducked over to Detroit in the United States to uh, to tour the General Motors facility there, their top secret proving ground that... Uh, well, they don't like media being there, but we got a special exemption to go and have a look at some future product there. Um, some pretty ex- incredible electric vehicles coming our way from General Motors. They're, ex- they're investing $35 billion over the coming uh, years in their electric vehicle market. And one of them is the Hummer EV, which is exciting for a lot of people in this region. I know uh, from personally, people heard, heard that I was going over saying, yeah, you're driving the Hummer. Well, yes, I did. I'll tell you what, what a drive that is. Um, I also got to speak to the, uh, the boss of General General Motors International, uh, while we're over there in, in Detroit, Shilpin Amin, and uh, we'll be chatting to him a little later on in the show, and uh, we'll also find out when we can, uh, can we expect to find the first ever, well, Bentley, they're also going electric as well, so we're going to find out when we can expect the first Bentley here in the UAE that is powered purely by electricity, and I've got the answer to that one as well. I've also been speaking to the regional manager here, Richard Leopold, in the UAE, He'll give us all the updates on uh, Bentley in uh, the MENA region. And uh, I'm also bringing you the latest car news with Imtishan Giado, the partner at Motoring Middle East. He's been driving around in Salala and has some tips for you. If you want to do that long drive before the summer ends, and particularly some wise advice coming given the the, uh, the rains that we've had recently and uh, how to take care of your SUV in those conditions. All that and a whole lot more coming up. But right now it's time for... Fix it. Or flip it. Yeah, tell us about your car and we'll tell you how much it's worth. And this is how it works. It's pretty easy. We need the details of your car. We need the make. We need the model. We need the year. We need the colour. We need the mileage. Any famous stories, any anecdotes, anything that might help to add to the value and the character of your car. We'd love to hear it. And you can send them to 4001 or via the ARN player. And myself and valuation guru Matthew Davison, who is the head of pricing at Algo Driven, will do our best to, uh, to give you some results. Good morning, Matthew. Morning, Damien. I don't even know where to start after hearing all of that. <laughs> I heard that you're interested in the Hummer EV. We were talking about it this week. I said to Zena, um, it's funny you should mention it because there was a lot of chat about it when it was first launched. And you remember they, they put that video out on social media of the crab walk uh, and it was out um, in the mountains, etc. And then it's it's been relatively quiet. And then it's, you know, now people are starting to actually get their hands on them like you have been. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. Thousand brake horsepower, yeah, naught to sixty in three seconds. I mean, it, it, you know, for something that's so heavy. I mean, imagine you're in a Lamborghini Huracan at the lights, <laughs> and this huge, big uh, Hummer pulls next to you, and then it's gone. I mean, crazy, yeah. It is, um, yeah. I can tell you from firsthand experience, all of that is true. Um, the crab walk, the the acceleration. Uh, we had three of us in the car and on gravel, and it was still lightning quick. But it doesn't feel big. That's the thing. It's you know, it, it feels quite light and nimble for the size of the vehicle. And they they look they were very encouraging to give us a you know allowing us to push it hard and getting the tail to hang out and give it you know, getting it sliding around a little bit. So it's not like uh, the conceptions people have of, of Hummers of, of previous years. This is a very very different car, um, but just a whole lot of fun. And you know what's really smart? They've got this car out ahead 
of the Cybertruck, the Tesla Cybertruck. And I think that's critical because in the UAE, both of these vehicles are going to be huge hits. I can just picture these being massively successful here. But first to market, first mover is always important. And I I think if they can get some... uh, volume on the roads i think that could damage uh the cybertruck sales here not massively but it will affect it yeah i think so and, and also don't forget ford have the f-150 lightning that's that's on the way as well and Correct. yeah it is it is it is a bit of an arms race to get the first electric uh, you know suv truck on the road at the moment GM's leading with this one. It's going to be a big one. So, uh, yeah, we'll be covering that in the second hour in depth. Um, had, a, had a lot of fun there. And uh, there's some other stuff coming up in future shows as well that I managed to pick up as well. Now, while I've been away, though, of course, um, it has been raining bucket loads here in, in, this, in this region. And uh, I missed all of it because I was in the air. But one of the stories that made the headlines this week was the floods in Fajera and how many vehicles were written off. Uh, the images of the cars floating, I mean, you know, the insurance companies surely have their work cut out for them at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's double-edged sword, isn't it, really? Because we need the rain here. Um, you know, um, cloud seeding is is actually engineered in a real thing. But we do that because, you know, we have to, when, when there is any kind of overcast, cloudy conditions, we need to exploit that and get some rain out of those clouds. But the, the byproduct of that is, of course, we get a lot of rain, uh, in a very short period of time. And, and I think when you see those videos of, of you know, six foot of water going down and then the shops, uh, I'm sure that you've seen these videos where the shops are unfortunately affected as well uh, and the homes, etc. I mean, it's pretty scary. Um, and, you know, ultimately it does feed into the insurance pool. I mean, the way insurance companies work by their nature is money comes in and money goes out and then they recalculate the premiums for the next for the next year based on how many claims they had. So unfortunately, all these claims do slightly affect all of our insurance across the board. Yeah, and it's just a matter of just, you know, also just being careful out there. I mean, stories of people camping in wadis in in summer still defies me. If you... If you're a novice, I can, I guess, I can understand the mistake. But if you've lived here for a while, everyone knows you don't camp in waddies during, especially during the during the wet season. And uh, sad results, unfortunately, for a few who got caught out. I, I really don't understand it. I mean, um, I've learned over the years here that we have so little rain, particularly in Dubai, that when it does rain, I only take essential journeys. And if you think, "Oh, why? Surely you can drive in the rain?" Of course I can, but mm. it's everyone else, and that's the issue. Um, and I try to minimize my journeys when it's raining here. Uh, but to actually go into the mountains or anywhere like that, uh, unless it's life or death situation, you shouldn't be out in your cars. I mean, you're just setting yourself up for trouble. Um, and anyone that's listening, if, if we are expecting rain or it's you know, forecast, just please stay away from these places because you're risking the lives of you and your family. And it's just not smart to be out there. Yeah, I mean, I look at it the same way as, you know, heavy snowfall. I mean, we have heavy rain here and it's the same thing. You live in a cold climate and if you if you hear a story of a blizzard coming along, you prepare in advance and you, you prefer preferably do not uh, do not go out in those times. But um, but yeah, anyway, um, we're going to get straight into it, Matthew. Liam has uh, sent us a message. He drives a Ford Focus 2017 model. He drives it to Abu Dhabi a few times a week and it's done 130,000 kilometres. But he has a question for you about auto parts. 
So I recently had some uh, noise coming out of my car. It turned out my wheel bearings needed replacing, so they were replaced. But um, after a couple of thousand kilometers, the noise started again. And it turns out that the parts used were aftermarket parts, which I wasn't actually aware of. So my question is, how safe is it to use aftermarket parts for something like wheel bearings? If they still are unable to get hold of the original parts, should I uh, think about changing the car? Uh, how much time have we got for this <laughs> for this oh, one? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this a few times before, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, a wheel bearing obviously sits on the hub. Um, if you imagine where, if you took your wheel off, you've got your hub and your brake disc, etc., and it sits in the middle, and it's it's there to 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 stop the the, the friction and the heat and make the ride smoother but when they fail then you you know you can a lot of components can fail on that you can actually have the wheel seize up which you wouldn't want to happen it can affect your brakes it can also affect things like the trailing arms cv joints etc um so to answer is it a, could it be a problem yes um especially but you you kind of know if they were about to fail because they'd be very noisy mm, yeah not just a sound but that it'd be like metallic type sound so if you're ever driving a car and your humming is changed to metallic i suggest you stop that car or drive it very slowly because it's unsafe but in in regards to to uh, what they call oem parts original manufacturer parts versus you know aftermarket parts i mean it depends on on which part of the car something like a wheel bearing yeah you've got to be careful i would say aftermarket parts are okay they just won't last as long like normally, um, wheel bearings would last about 120 to 150,000 kilometers, the original parts. But maybe aftermarket might only last as, as much as 80 to 100,000. So that that's the main difference. They won't last as long. But um, I, I wouldn't say I'd get rid of the car if they couldn't get uh, original parts. I'd still put an aftermarket part on, but understand that they might not last as long. And yeah. the last part is he said, you know, he's changed them and he's still got a bit of noise. That can be due to the fitting of them. If mm. they over tighten them or, or under tighten them, as an example, or they're not seated correctly, that can also cause noise. So it might not be that the part is bad. It might be the actual installation that's poor. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is if you get an opportunity when you do get, drop a car in for, for servicing, um, is to ask to see the parts that came out of the car. Now, there's nothing stopping them from grabbing parts from another car that's identical, but it just... It does put them in the corner for just for for a little bit and makes them think because a thought that went through my head immediately when I heard this uh, heard uh, uh, Liam talk about this is that if the if the bearings are starting to make the noise again straight away, how does he know that they just haven't packed the bearings full of grease, which is a a trick to get out of, to, to to get through you know if you want to sell a car quickly that some people use they just pack it full of grease it keeps it quiet for a few weeks and it starts to come back so that is a another consideration with with wheel bearings but with that yeah i, I normally ask if i drop a car in for servicing or get past can i see the old parts please and so just so i can have a look and inspect and see how worn they are and it just it just puts the repairer on notice that uh that that you you're going to be uh, examining things i think you just made an excellent point that we haven't talked about on the show before uh, and, and this, I don't want people to think that I'm not trusting everybody, of course, but you know, when you go and, and get any kind of work done, I mean, historically, I've always asked them to put the old parts in the trunk, in the boot, mm. um, you know, whether it's brake pads or air filters or whatever. 
Um, because a, I'm quite curious. I want to see, you know, h- how clogged my air filter was, yeah, exactly. or how how worn out my brake pads are. But it also gives you the reassurance that, that they're changed. You can't see an air filter, for example, unless you remove the box in the engine, uh, the cover that uh, clips on, and you, 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 unless you want to be on your hands and knees, you also can't really clearly see the brake pads. So, yeah, I think that's a great point you make. That you should ask anybody that does work on your car, please put the old parts in a box in in the trunk. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Fix it or flip it. Now, Matthew, um, I've got a very quick message here too from uh, someone who hasn't left a name. It's a very brief message. They have a Porsche Panamera Turbo S 2010 with 128,000 kilometres looking for evaluation. Oh, that's a rapid car. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, at, at the time, at the time that was knocking on 700,000 dirhams. Uh, can you believe that brand new mm. um that car would be about eighty thousand now simply because it's a 12 year old car and, and and they are expensive to maintain you know big 4.8 v8 turbo um but yeah the kilometers aren't too bad considering um yeah. it's 12 years old but yeah i mean i'd put it i'd put it on the market for 80 and somebody that just would like something um mind-blowingly quick could pick that up i'm sure yeah, so yeah, there you go. Um, now I've got uh, uh, Mike has uh, texting a question. He said, I'm, "I'm planning to purchase a pre-owned Subaru WRX STI since it looks like fun to drive." Um, you're right, Mike. It is. It's brilliant. Just wanted your opinion on it. Uh, also wanted a pre-owned Charger RT, but uh, what when I look at it online, it's mostly American specs and suspiciously cheap. I mean, with a V8 car with less than 100,000 kilometers on the clock selling for less than 50K, what's up with that? Well, firstly, what's your opinion on that car, that RT Charger for less than 50K um, near new, I guess? It hasn't put a year on it. Yeah, we just talked a couple of weeks ago about um, these these cars coming in, and we know the reason why. You know, they're, mm. they're typically uh, insurance write-offs in the States. Um, they're shipped over they're fixed up and they're sold on and and like i always say just use your logical brain and just think how can something be the other side of the world uh be shipped and think about the cost of shipping these days ship it all the way over to the uae and it still be cheaper than other cars on the market that that tells you everything you need to know um and i'm a big fan of buying gcc cars because you can generally trace where it's been you know you can look through the service logs and think right you know it's been serviced on time or you can meet the actual owner of the car etc but when it comes from outside of the country typically the the service history uh, miraculously disappears um and you don't know anything about the car whether the kilometers are genuine etc so you know that covers that side of it i'm, I'm not a fan of of getting those cars um but uh yeah, I mean to to pick up the the STI that would be uh, that would be a lot of fun here. There's, um, yeah, uh, I'd, and I'd, go on. Yeah, go Sorry. on. Yeah, so okay, I was I was just going to say if you you'd be lucky to find less than half a dozen on the market. That's the only problem, uh, and you might have to go back to sort of anything between 2012 2014. But you know, you'd be looking to get into a 2014 for about seventy five thousand. Uh, Durham's and uh, that is a lot of fun. Uh, great value too. I mean, if you can get one. But the problem is, is that um, there are more right-hand drive than left-hand drive versions. So, you know, getting the Japanese domestic market model, or uh, I was just about to say, right now there's there's one up for auction. Uh, but the original two-door 
uh, one up for auction in Australia. I'm keeping an eye on that. There's another few days to go. I'm not buying it, um, but I'm just curious to see what that one will go for because they go for six-figure numbers now, but uh, great fun. Um, but going back to your insurance issue too, uh, just as a point that we're talking about before the break as well, um, keeping an eye out on a, on, uh, a lot of um, – ridiculously cheap cars hitting the market now because I fear that people might be um, getting their flood damaged cars on the market pretty soon so just buyer beware again if something seems too good it probably is yeah and if you ever have a a concern I mean you should be getting a pre-purchase vehicle inspection anyway before buying any car but you know if you if you do have concerns then uh, get it inspected and ask the whoever's inspecting that car for you to actually specifically focus to see if it's been um subject to any flood damage and they can do that by their they'll actually lift up the carpets and they'll 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 look around the underneath part of the car for for rusting as well i mean um you know we we inspect a lot of cars at algo driven and and we see underneath where they've been sat in water and mm. you can see all of the exhaust is rusted the the underneath of the chassis is rusted so yeah just do your due diligence and, and get it inspected ahead of purchase yeah for sure they're going to go to the lines now we've got uh, ahmed on the line uh ahmed, good morning you've got a uh, chevrolet suburban morning hi hi yes i've got 2013 suburban the 2500 size so it's not the light of duty the heavier one mm-hmm. okay and uh how, how many kilometers have you have you done on this car um, it has 100,000 kilometers now. Uh, it has full service history. It's a GTC, obviously, yes. Okay, and you're looking to looking to sell, get a valuation? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, Matthew, well, it's the uh, Chev Suburban 2500. It's a GCC car, 100,000 kilometers. Yeah, morning. Uh, the kilometers are great. I mean, normally I'd, I'd expect to see closer to... Uh, you know, 160, 170 is an average and, and some even more. But these are fantastic vehicles for just moving people around in. Um, they're, they're, a, they're a big vehicle um, and they're thirsty, uh, which is probably the only thing that I, I would say is, is against it at the moment. Although fuel is, thanks to God, dropping a, a, a lot at the moment. We just had a, a big drop at the fuel pumps. But yeah, in terms of value, I think you need to get this car out there um and I would put it probably a bit more sensibly um, based on the fact that with with the way prices, et cetera, are and the fact that it is nearly a 10-year-old car. And I would say its value would be about 62 to 65 based on those kilometers. But, yeah, um, a wonderful vehicle for moving a lot of people around. Yeah. How does that sound, Ahmed? That sounds perfect. I had about 50,000 in mind, actually. That sounds perfect. Well, there you go. As we say, that it's it's a seller's market, so it's it's in your pocket. Excellent, excellent. Thank Brilliant. you very much. Thanks very much. Now we're going straight now to uh, to Ricky. Now, Ricky, you've got a uh, you've got a, a conundrum here. You've got a Ford Ranger, but it's a diesel, um, and you're looking to find a mechanic. Is that right? Hey, yes, that's correct. Morning. Good morning. Yeah. So you t- tell us about your Ranger firstly. What what year is it, and and uh, how many kilometers have you completed? So it was bought zero kilometers, 2015. It has done 190,000 kilometers. Um, it was always serviced and looked at uh, Ford until the warranty expired. And now uh, for the last uh, six months, the RPM keeps um, go, uh, going up and down when I, when I drive at 80 kilometers plus. So the RPM just fluctuates. Um, and I'm struggling to find a good uh, diesel mechanic. Okay. Is it a manual or automatic? 
It's an automatic wild track. Okay. Yeah, it might be. With 190,000 kilometres, uh, Matthew, a slipping clutch perhaps? Possibly, but, I mean, um, you know, it's very difficult unless you're there, you know, feeling and experiencing the fault. But, you know, when, when you have loss of power as well and, and intermittently like that where it's the, the rev is moving up and down, it can be related to fuel or air as well. Um, it depends when you last had, you know, fuel filters and air filters, et cetera, changed. I mean, I, I'd, be, I'd be looking there, first of all, before I went anywhere else. In regards to um, getting it maintained outside of the agency, if you if you search around on Google, there are some pretty decent um, aftermarket garages. I mean, you, you want to really focus just on, on the on the, the the manufacturer Ford rather than specifically diesel, because the uh, there's plenty of these vehicles um, in the UAE and there has been over the years. So these guys know how to work with them. And like I said, the, the fault might not be related specifically to, to, the, to the engine and the engine components. As Damien said, it could be related to the clutch slipping. It could also, um, especially with those kilometers, and it could be related to something, um, you know, blocked fuel filter, could be uh, the air filter needs changing, et cetera. So I, I, would, I would look around there, but um, don't specifically limit yourself to looking for a diesel mechanic, look for a good aftermarket Ford mechanic because they will know how to work with those uh, Ranger diesel engines. I actually um, did uh, get an assessment from Altair Motors and they gave me uh, like a 23,000 dirham assessment on that. So it's not related to the servicing part. It's something to do with, it's not even the transmission. Um, I don't have the report on me right now, but it was something major they said. Mm, okay. okay. Yeah. As we as we said, I mean, without specifically knowing, um, you know, what the what the fault is, it's hard to comment on it. But one thing that I always advise is is get at least two or three quotes, because okay. um, you know everybody's going to have an opinion, and, and especially at, at the uh, at the main dealer is going to be very expensive. But look, if you've got three quotes and they all come back confirming the same fault, well, you know the fault is genuine and, and, and that's what you need to focus on. And then you can look at what it's going to cost you financially to fix it and who you feel is the best option. But don't rely on one quote. Whatever car you've got, yes, manufacturer is good to get a baseline from, but please go and get another two or three quotes. Yeah, I hope that helps you, uh, Ricky. And, um, yeah, just, just get a couple of quotes and, and, and then uh, take it from there. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your opinion. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Th thanks very much. Fix it or flip it. Tell us about your car. We'll tell you how much it's worth, and it's very easy. We just need as many details as possible as we can. The make, the model, the year, the colour, the mileage. Send them to 4001 or via the ARM player. Farouk, good morning, Farouk. Good morning to you. Th thanks, for, thanks for hanging on. Um, now, I believe you've got a uh, Nissan Patrol that you're looking to get a valuation on. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, either selling it or looking for a hybrid, actually. What do you think? I mean, what's the worth of the uh, Nissan at this point? Okay, so it's uh, it's a 2014 model, and you've got 220,000 kilometers on it. Um, Agency maintained. Yeah. Are you, are you looking to do, uh, do... Do you do off-roading with it, regular off-roading, or is it more of a commuter vehicle? Uh, the wife does uh, driving. It's the wife's car. So okay. It's on the road. Yeah. So, Matthew, what do you think? Um, hybrids for Nissan Patrol size? Um, well, 
I mean, I'll start by answering the question of, <laughs> of the, the value. Um, Farouk, morning. Thanks for calling. Um, is it the SLE? Can you just tell me a little bit more about the trim? I really have no idea. I don't know. But... Okay. Uh, if, we, if we presume it's the, the SE, um, okay. then uh, with, with that type of kilometers, I think the value of the car is around 75 in, in the current market. Um, that would be where I would place it if it's an SE. But you, you need to know that because there's, there's lots of different trims, SE, LE, Platinum. Um, you, you need to know because the price does jump between them. Um, if, if it was the LE, for example, you can easily put about another twelve um, to 15000 on that valuation. Um, but in terms of looking at replacing it, uh, with a hybrid. I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are, uh, Damien, but the Lex, I would probably go down the route of the Lexus. Yeah. Um, I, I was just about to suggest, like, uh, pretty much any Toyota product. Toyota is very big on hybrids, uh, more so than, than full electric vehicles. So they've, every every vehicle in the Toyota range, you can get a, get a hybrid on it. Um, if you wanted to go sort of larger truck size and you're looking at, say, the Ford F, F series, you can get a hybrid, but that's, that's big bucks. And if you're looking to trade a 220,000 kilometre 2014 patrol, you'd be digging deep in your pockets for that one. Yeah, there's, there's, not, there's not too many um, large size hybrids as well, because by nature of a car being so big and heavy, you, you do need some grunt behind it. You do need some like, you know, V8 grunt. So um, that's always the problem. But yeah, as Damien says, Toyota and Lexus, which obviously is a luxury arm of Toyota, they're, they're, that, that's the way to go for, for larger hybrids. Excellent. Brilliant. Thank, thanks, thanks, very much. thanks very much, Farouk. And we're going straight now to uh, to Faisal. Now, good morning, Faisal. You've got uh, a question here that I'm sure Matthew can answer very well. You've uh, placed a deposit onto a Tesla Model 3. Uh, tell us more about your, your, why why have you placed a deposit and uh, and what would you like from us? Hi, hi guys. Hi, Matthew. I'm, yeah, I just placed a deposit on a, a Model 3 performance, which should arrive in uh, October, November. But my only worry is really reliability and, and range. I've never uh, used an EV vehicle before, so mm. I'm kind of going front and back with this uh, idea. Yeah, look, I think I think range is becoming a bit of a, uh, a it's becoming less of an issue very quickly. And if you look at particularly with people stepping out of performance vehicles, uh, I've just had a couple of V8s and I've had a couple of uh, supercars I've been testing lately. And I tell you what, I had more range anxiety with uh, with 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 the fe- petrol tank running lower than I did out of uh, I just been driving the, the the Volvo XC40 recharge this week with no range anxiety at all by comparison. So it's becoming less of an issue when you start looking at the way you how quickly some of the the heavier vehicles are going through petrol but but matthew you're the man in the seat being a tesla owner um tell us your thoughts yeah morning faisal um i mean if if you live in an apartment or you don't have access to charge the car yourself at home then um you're you're relying on the network but the network here is is growing every single day there seems to be charges just about everywhere you can buy um a, a tesla with uh pretty good confidence now that you're not going to have range anxiety and you can download an app called plug share and plug share shows you where all, all the all the charges are um in terms of uh the the model 3 performance that is such a great car so quick i mean not to 60 in three seconds you're going to have a lot of fun um and you you don't have too long to wait i certainly wouldn't look at pre-owned ones 
um, because they're they're selling for not far off new car prices and they're a year or two old with um, tens of thousands of kilometers on. So um, a, a lot of people will be quite envious that you don't have to wait that long, actually, because um, we're already well into August. So I would stick it out, wait for your car to arrive. I think um, you're going to really, really enjoy it. And I wouldn't worry about range anxiety. Even I don't live um, in a villa. I live in an apartment and I have no problem charging the car. There seems to be charges just about everywhere I go now. Yeah. Uh, and also, Faisal, consider this too. If you're, you're get, you are getting a performance car, the Model 3 performance is, Matthew said, very, very quick. And you compare that to a combustion engine car that delivers the same performance, I would, I would, I would like to compare them and suggest perhaps that you might even get more range out of, a, out of the Tesla compared to a, a, car that, a combustion engine car that will get you to 100 kilometres an hour in three seconds, how long that will last with a full tank of fuel. So I don't think you really have too much to worry about. Well, I mean, uh, one one last question. If, uh, uh, I, I may, do we is there any issues with the lithium batteries and the heat we have here in our country? Uh, again, a good question mm. and, and and a right one to ask. That now, right your question. car will come. Your car will come with uh, a four year warranty that covers everything on the car. So you know, for example, if the electric seat didn't work or or there was an issue with um, the AC, so you got four years warranty, but you have eight years warranty on the battery and the actual motors so um in term and that runs to 160,000 kilometers as well so i think you're going to be or okay from a warranty perspective from a heat perspective no we don't have any issues here um actually in the colder climates the actual car has to heat the battery to make it uh, optimal for charging um, and, and remember, um, Tesla is not just selling cars into this region. They sell them into the southern states, for, exa- for example, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, etc., where in the summer, particularly Texas, has temperatures even hotter than we do uh, here in Dubai. So I don't think you're going to have any issues there. Um, and uh, as I said, from, from a charging perspective, uh, it actually helps it to be in a slightly warmer climate than a colder climate. Yeah, and, and the other thing too, I mean, I, I just came back from a, from a trip to the States with General Motors. I went to their battery factory. They were testing their batteries in 90 degrees Celsius to, to make sure before they put them into their vehicles. So, you know, they do go through hot weather testing. But also too, with an electric vehicle, you get what they call over-the-air updates. And that will actually, you know, you'll wake up in the morning and find that you've got a bit of extra performance or you'll find you've got more range or you'll find a, a change to your, to your car inf- infographics. Uh, Porsche, Porsche has just recently done that with a Taycan, that they've actually increased the range of the car and also changed the, uh, the screens that you see inside. So you know, as the technology improves, it filters through to you very, very quickly. Yeah, and, and one addition to that that, I, that happened this, this week, which is super cool. So Tesla have just done a new over-the-air update for, for their cars. And um, there's a tiny camera that sits under the rearview mirror that, that actually monitors the cabin. And it now um, can predict an accident. If an accident is 99% likely to happen, it, it tensions the seatbelt. It actually like tightens the seatbelt ahead of impact and, and, and deploys the airbag. So if you think how a traditional accident happens, you will you will have impact and then the airbag comes out super aggressively um, and the force of, of stopping uh, is what tightens the seatbelt. Where Tesla now, they know you're about to have an accident. They can deploy the airbag in a slower, more controlled pace so it's not as aggressive and actually tighten the seatbelt ready for the impact. 
And this all happened over the up uh, over the air. You didn't have to go into a service center or anything. So these are the these are the advancements in in vehicles that we're, we're getting now, and it's it's really super exciting. Mm. Wow, that that's amazing. I think that's the way forward. For sure, Fuzzle. For sure, I think you're on the right track. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much. Now we'll go straight to uh, Annie. Good morning, Annie. You've got a BMW X5 2015 model. Um, what can you tell us about this one? Hi, good morning. Um, I just want to find out um, how much that can go for. Um, just looking at um, selling it and getting something else. Okay, so you've got uh, uh, 79,000 kilometres, is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Um, do you know, so it's a 3, 3.5 litre. Matthew, um, what, what would you think? 2015 model. Yeah, it's a morning. It's likely to be the 35i is the mm. trim. Yeah. Um, That's correct. The, yeah, your your um, kilometres are fantastic um, for what is essentially a seven-year-old car. And I think that is where you need to push in your advertisement. You know, your first line should be uh, very low kilometres because it is for the for the age. Um, and that, that will be the difference between your car uh, selling versus the others on the market. I think the value, you could be quite um, aggressive with the value if you want to sell it quite quickly. But I would put it on for 125,000 dirhams um, and go from there. Uh, these, these cars typically uh, are selling with 100,000 kilometers around 110, 115. So I think with your lower kilometers, you could achieve 125. All right. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Thank, thanks very much, Annie. I think that, that that gives me a good sense of uh, what I should be asking for. I appreciate Matthew. Thank you. All all the best. Uh, now we've got a we've got a message here texted in for you, Matthew, and uh, this is um, no name on it, but it's a Ford Edge SEL 2014 model, first registered in uh, 2015. 143,000 kilometres on the clock with full Altaya service history, and it still has warranty for another 17 months. Wow. Um, so they've actually taken advantage of something that, that Ford will do. So you, can't, you, you have a five-year warranty as standard, but you have the ability to then uh, continue that for another couple of years, um, providing that you've, you've had the original one and maintained it at, at Ford in terms of servicing. So that's, that's a great selling feature to sell uh, that car with a warranty. I think in terms of uh, price, because the SEL um, is, is a sort of mid-trim, it sort of sits uh, un underneath limited um, but above the SE, I think value-wise, I'd put it on for 49 just a whisker yeah. under 50 yeah, uh, you know, it feels like a fifty thousand car, but you you want to get it psychologically at forty nine. And again, your selling feature in this case is that warranty. So in the headline, first line warranty, because very few two thousand fourteen cars are go going to be able to to write that comment. Absolutely, you you invest in the warranty. It's time to get a little bit back. So uh, put it in there first line. Couldn't agree more. Fix it or flip it. Tell us about your car. We'll tell you how much it's worth, and this is—it's uh, easy to do. It's—we need the make, for the model, the year, the colour, the mileage. You can send them to four double zero one or via the ARM Play app. And of course, I'm not doing it alone. I'm doing it with Matthew Davison here, who is the head of pricing at Algo Driven. And uh, Matthew, it's a—it's a—it's a busy morning this morning. Um, I've got a text message straight up here from here from Kevin. It says, hey, Matthew, can you recommend some garages? My service warranty is expiring soon, and I want to make sure I pick the right place. 
Uh, a bit of a broad one. Hasn't mentioned what sort of car he's got, but uh, reputable garages out there. Yeah, and and you know, um, I, I will not specifically mention a a, a, a garage because I want to re- always remain neutral, and uh, that's the right thing to do. But what I will say is, if you if you're looking for an aftermarket garage, look, just invest an hour of your time and, and do some good research. I mean. You know, look at reviews and, of course, um, look how they're written as well. You know, mm. sometimes I look at reviews and I think you look at the name. It says Matthew Davidson. But then you think, right, OK, uh, English, British guy. And then you look at the way the grammar's worded and you think he didn't write that. Yeah. That's no, that's <laughs> not, not the so, you know, you need you need to look a little bit deeper uh, at reviews. But one thing that you, you can do, um, particularly if you work in a, in a place that's got a lot of employees, is just ask people, where do you service your car? What are they like? How have they been with you? They've been consistent. You know, you've got to get out recommendations. Uh, we do it for everything else, don't we? You know, we get restaurant recommendations from friends and hotel recommendations. So, you know, ask people where they are servicing their cars uh, and couple that with some with some research online as well. And I think you'll get there. Um, and, you know, what I can also recommend is start with a garage and see how they'll do a basic task for you. Mm. Maybe go in and to clean the brake discs or the rotors um, or perhaps just do a basic oil change or you know top up your fluids or something and just see how they are with you and how they react to that you know if if they're very um, dismissive about just doing small jobs etc with you and they look like they don't really care for you then that tells a lot it speaks volumes Um, but yeah I I would go down that route uh, some due diligence looking at reviews speaking to friends and work colleagues and actually testing a garage first of all with a smaller job before the, before you give them anything yeah, quite major. Absolutely good good advice. I uh, got a great question that's, that's been texted in from uh, from Ricky who phoned in a little earlier. Obviously, Ricky's hung around to listen to uh, to to more of the show. Thanks, Ricky, because he's picked up on the chat that we're having with Faisal just before the break about the Tesla Model Three, and uh, he says that he has a te- he also has a Tesla Model Y long range. Uh, it's a twenty twenty two model. Um, he wants to ask: Is it okay to charge the battery every night, even if it's at fifty or sixty percent, and not wait till it goes down to very low? What what's what's your thoughts what's your charging regime matthew uh that's the exact car i have the model y long range um what i do is i don't you you can let it run very low to a few percent and you can charge it very high but the the optimal way to charge these batteries is don't really let it go much below 20 percent and then if you're not going to drive it immediately after the charging cycles finish, you don't really want to go above about 80 85 percent so what i do is i set on the app and the car, you can set what you want it to charge to. I tend to charge it to uh, within those limits, no lower than 20 and no higher than 85. But if I'm about to drive it um, again, so for example, I was in Mall of the Emirates a few days ago and I was going to drive from there up to the car market in Ras Al So I set it to 90% because I knew that, you know, pretty soon I'm going to, I'm going to lose five to 10% just driving up all the way up there. So just bear that in mind. It's not wise to charge it exactly to 100% um, if you're going to uh, not go on a long drive. And every night, always plug it in. You can leave it plugged in, but just set your app or, or the car to those parameters. You'll be fine. Yeah, see, I, I find, I'm kind of with you on that, I find that um, uh, charging any more than about 80 85%, it, it kind of becomes a backward process from there because it's so slow to get that last top bit in. But also it's not, it's, it, 
impacts the, uh, the the life of the battery if you keep topping it to 100%. So what I tend to do with electric cars is I plug them into the, into the wall unit at home, the regular one. It's a slow charge, but you, you're sleeping, right? So you, you're doing it and, and, on, and on off-peak rates and that sort of thing. And then you leave the superchargers and the fast chargers for when you're in need of them, when you're running low and you, and you, you need to spend a bit of money to plug in. But otherwise, trickle charge overnight, I think, is, um, is, is my go-to for most of the time. Yeah, and just a point on supercharging, you don't want to supercharge all the time. Yeah. It's not good for the car. So um, you've got your basic chargers, like 11 kilowatt chargers. Then you've got your little bit heavier ones, like the, the Adnoc have started putting in 45, 50 watt chargers in their stations. So, so they're a bit quicker. And then, you know, when you initially plug in your Tesla supercharger, you can be at 180, 200 kilowatts. But as you say, as you get as you get to about 80, 85 percent, that slows right down to about 30 kilowatts anyway, mm. um, because it it. it, it Look at it like you're filling um, you're filling something up. As it gets to the top, there's less and less air, or, and it's it's reducing, reducing, and it's very difficult just to top off that last part. But yeah, I mean, mix your charging up. I supercharge probably one in ten charges. Yeah. I would say, um, and that's the way to go for sure. Yeah, for sure. Let's go straight to the lines. We have got Nick on the line. Thanks for holding, Nick. Uh, Nick, you've got a Jeep Grand Cherokee, uh, the Hemi, the five point seven liter V eight. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so it's a uh, yeah, 2015 model, first registered in uh, 2016, done about 95,000 kilometres, um, the Summit summit model, so the high trim, and just wondering what the, the value might be. Yeah, the V8, Matthew, not bad. Yeah, 5.7 Hemi. Um, yeah, the Summit does does live at the top of the, um, the trim range. Um, so I would say that car needs to go online for around... 70 to 75 it depends on your urgency to sell it nick i mean we are in a uh, you know i talked a few months ago that july and august would be quieter in the car market considering how crazy it's been um but things yeah. will start to change towards the end of this month as the schools go back and people start returning to the uae um if you want to move it a bit quicker put it on for 69 fixed um, I like yeah. I like fixed price because it makes your conversations easier. So when people WhatsApp you or message you, you say, "Look, the car's great, full service history with Jeep. It's sixty nine k. I'm not moving off that price. So if you're prepared to pay that, come and see it. If not, let's save both of our time. And that's sometimes a better approach um, because you can deal with things on the phone rather than have having somebody come to your home, spend an hour with you, then to offer you fifty. Uh, which yeah. is not good for anybody. So, yeah, that, that's that's probably the route I'd go. Um, Sixty nine fixed. Okay, brilliant. Th- thanks very much, Nick. Um, <laughs> so, good morning, Craig. Thanks for joining us. And you've got a no Ford worries. Explorer Sport. I I understand. Tell us more about it. Yeah, so it's been our uh, or the wife's daily driver for the past three years, and uh, yeah, just looking at uh, it's now our second car. 175,000 K, but um, been serviced with the dealer the whole time. Um, no history of accidents or anything like that. It's a good straight car. Yeah, just wondering what yeah. uh, what I should be uh, advertising it for. What do you think, Matthew? Morning. I mean, there's proof that we're live. So anyone ever <laughs> doubts that this, this show is recorded, there's, there's your proof that we're live. And thanks for calling in. Did you say it's a 13 model? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so just like our previous caller, your your model, the Sport, also sits at the top of the range. It's the most desirable one. Um, I think 
a very similar approach because you're you, you, this car's around fifty thousand. That's its value. So again, I would go down that same advice: forty nine thousand fixed price for this car. Um, you do need to get sport in the headline and put um, this is the, this is the top of the range because a lot of people looking for explorers they're buying them because they're a good seven seat family car. What they don't particularly know is the difference between all the different trims. Um, like the uh, the limited um, up to the sport, etc. So you need to tell people um, so they know the difference between, say, a limited XLT and a sport. This is top of the yep. range, and it's forty nine k. But that's that's yeah, where this car needs to live. Yeah, so it's a, the V six twin turbo. So it's uh, goes goes like stink when you want it to. <laughs> yeah, and and, and uh, you know. And the ability to to comfortably move seven people around with still trunk space. So yeah, they are good, and they are they are a go-to expat car. So I spell it out for everybody, even people that are messaging messaging you. Remember to remind them that this is the top of the range trim. Yep. Great. Brilliant. I hope that helps, Craig. And um, all the best with that one. And uh, well, that's all we've got time for for Fix and Flip. But what a busy show that's been this morning, Matthew. Uh, thank you so much for that one. Uh, what, what, are your, what are your plans this afternoon, Matthew? Well, I'm going to hang around and listen to the rest of the show because the the Hummer that we talked about at the top of the show, I really want to hear your full um, review on it because this genuinely is a car that I would potentially be looking at ordering. Um, you know, I've, I've got into the EV world with the Model Y, um, but, you know, my next EV, I, I would like to move away from Tesla because, you know, Tesla isn't just EV. Uh, Audi put out some great uh, EVs as well. But I think this Hummer, there's not a lot dissuading me at the moment so I'm, I'm keen to hear what you've got to say about it well stick you're a good man um thank you so much and uh yeah stick around for this one thank you very much matthew davison head of pricing at algo driven i'm joined now by him the shanjado the partner at motoring middle east this is motormania with you through until midday Good morning, in the Shan. It's been a while. It has been a while, and it's good to be back, Damien. Welcome back. You've you've been. I've been following your Instagram stories with with great interest. I love them. Um, I like them anyway, but I love them when you you took the 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 old Land Cruiser you've been restoring. Well, not uh, it's it's a, it's a young timer, and you drove it to Salama. Tell, tell us a little it's, bit about it's it. It's lived the life of a car much younger for much longer. <laughs> um, to give you a quick brief on the car, it was more or less a scrap heap when I picked it up last year. Now it's been fully restored-ish, mostly working, half a million kilometers on the clock. I uh, also converted it from automatic to manual, which was a very interesting thing, and it's still the cause of many problems to this day, but it is working. So basically I drove to Salala, which is a 18-hour, 3,000-kilometer round trip with no backup, uh, not even so much as a bottle of coolant in the car. So that's really putting a lot of trust in your mechanic. Half a million kilometers on a Land Cruiser, it's just running, isn't it? You say that. <laughs> so let's, let's, let's break it down a little bit. Half a million kilometers on a taxi, like a Dubai taxi is fine because that car is driven every day, regularly maintained. It's actually good for the car. It's not hard on the car. It's not highway miles. It's just highway miles, right? Yeah. This, on the other hand, is half a million Middle Eastern, you know, God knows what, off-roading kilometers. So he just had a hard life. Very, very so hard what, life. What sort Everything's of, broken. Yeah. What what sort of obstacles did you come across on your what, – what sort of tips can you give people who want to drive from here to Salala? Yeah, so I don't really bore people with, like, this is my holiday snaps. <laughs> but I also don't want to bore people, like, this is an old car and everything broke down because I can triumphantly report nothing broke down. I had exactly hey. one problem. I had um, the carpet flooded on the passenger side. 
Okay. Uh, when I went into Salah, it starts to rain, and for some reason, it's full of water. But turns out that the drains were just blocked. And with a zip tie, I just cleaned them out. It was never a problem ever again. However, it has been the entire carpet was soaked the entire time I was there. Um, for people going to Salala, I want to focus more on that because a lot of people want to know how do I get to Salala and why would you go to Salala? Well, first of all, from mid-July till about the end of September, something happens that's quite magical. It's called Karif. And mm. Karif is the monsoon that hits the lower part of Oman, specifically Salala. Salala is shielded a bit by the mountains. So what I can describe it as sort of your typical arid desert plain that blooms and becomes like Scotland is the only way to describe it. It's green, it's moist, it's about 30 degrees max, it's 100% humidity, but it's like being in the tropics. I could describe it as being in Sri Lanka mm. for uh, three months. So tons of people from the Gulf, well, people in the Gulf well know, but only in expats only realizing now that you can drive to Salala. It's not the most difficult drive, but it's extremely boring. Yeah. It's definitely a bucket list item for me. I mean, ever since I saw those photos, oh, I saw them probably, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, of, yeah, you know, moss-covered rocks and fog and misty mountains. It waterfalls, looks Waterfalls, like, tons of waterfalls. And it looks like, it does, it looks like Scotland or Wales or whatever, but then you've got cars with, with Saudi plates on them and, num- and Dubai plates on them. And, um, and it's totally- A lot of Abu Dhabi plates, actually. Yeah. Our Abu Dhabi cousins clearly, clearly like going down to Salala, which is great. I didn't feel like I was leaving home. Um few points for people who are curious about Salala. The big obstacle is not so much driving, but there's one specific road called the Route 31. The Route 31 goes from Nizwa down to Salala. It is almost a thousand kilometers long and it's not dead straight, but it's a thousand kilometers through the desert. It's a dual carriageway. I wouldn't recommend doing it at night. There are no lights. In the middle of it, there's no cell phone reception. Plenty of petrol stations before people start messaging in. There are every hundred kilometers you get a petrol station. They're extremely good uh, grades of petrol in Oman. Nothing to worry about. But it is very boring, especially mm. if you're doing it solo. I don't recommend it. I mean, I stopped quite a bit. I had coffee every once in a while. Uh, roadside services not great. Once in a while, you'll find like you know a decent toilet, whatever. But generally, it's petrol station in the middle of nowhere. There also aren't hotels. So if you make that drive, you start that drive, you have to finish it. In mm. one shot, if you can, or at least definitely take somebody with you to do it. It's an experience, and you can actually fly to Salala. There's a wonderful airport; it's very easy. So if you just want to go to Salala, just take take go by road and then rent a car. But everything's rented out. But once you get there, tons of things to do. Um, one thing I point out is they don't have a lot of tourist spots signposted. So do your research on the internet beforehand. We we talked about, of course, is that I did just come back from Detroit to test uh, a, a few new cars, including the Hummer EV and a, cu- a couple of others. So I drove, drove also drove the Cadillac Lyric which uh, we'll talk about in another program as well. But it's part of General Motors' EV move. And uh, one of the things we talk about with EV is charging infrastructure. It always comes up. Well, General Motors has developed um, a hydrogen-powered remote charger that they call Hydrotech. And uh, it looks like a diesel generator that's being towed around on the back of a car. It, it can be used for things like APUs, auxiliary, auxiliary power units of aircraft, um, remote areas as well. And it is a way that you can plug it into your car and uh, and get you out of trouble if you need to. So while I had the chance, it's still in prototype phase, so while I had the chance, I spoke to uh, Joseph Christoph, who is an engineer at Hydrotech, Hydrotech and I asked him to, uh, to tell me all about this re- recharging infrastructure. So we have basically a mobile charger that can be used anywhere. Um, it can be set up in less than an hour and essentially can be used in a very remote location or a location along the uh, side of a freeway that 
maybe has an excessive volume of traffic, potentially natural disaster happening uh, uh, somewhere where there's a lot of volume unexpectedly, or even a holiday weekend up in the mountains somewhere and you need extra charging, you can bring this thing in and it does the job. This thing is a, a sized uh, to be about the same size of a, as a diesel generator, but we put out a slightly uh, larger output than a diesel generator does for its size. The source of the hydrogen can be many different things. Here we're just doing a small demo, so we, we're contained to four small cylinders of hydrogen. But this can be scaled appropriately. We did a, a Lyric, a Cadillac Lyric launch in Park City, Utah, where the charging infrastructure was uh, a little bit lighter than you'd expect for that amount of vehicles. And we had a semi-truck trailer full of uh, hydrogen. I think it was 800 kilograms of hydrogen uh, there. And that would power uh, equivalent of about 37,000 Cadillac Lyric miles. So essentially, we could run a show, charge back to back to back. We could put this in a remote location for a month or months, depending on uh, usage. We can hot swap, so we can have several trailers, and this thing can essentially run continuously if needed. Sometimes if there are permanent DC fast chargers going in, this is a great thing to basically be able to test the market, basically be able to put this uh, in place while the DC fast charger is permitting's coming in, concrete cuttings coming in. Essentially, it's a great uh, temporary solution. Yeah, so that was actually, that was out, out in the field. Uh, we were in the middle of nowhere and uh, had five gas cylinders in the back of a pickup truck, which was attached to this charger. Um, and that was basically giving us uh, a lift home, in, in essence, when the car was getting low. So um, can I ask, is this basically a hydrogen powered power bank for your electric vehicle? Yes. The kind that we carry around with us. Yes, absolutely. It's Abs- a power bank. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and, and we conducted an interview standing right next to it whilst it was operating, so it was quiet. Oh, yeah, that's different from like a typical petrol power generator, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but it can be used for things like storm damage, you know, uh, towns that, that have blackouts, for instance, or um, areas that, that are struggling with, with power generation as well. So it, it's, it's useful for that kind of stuff as well. So, but it, they're getting around the idea of answering that question of, you know, charging infrastructure and what can we do. So, yeah, um, it's an, it was an interesting one. Uh, speaking of... All of this as well. I don't know if you picked up this story, but this story just came through uh, yesterday, Shan, that um, Lamborghini have said that they are banking on synthetic fuels for their large combustion engine supercars. Now, they're still building hybrid and electric vehicles, but they've been lobbying along with Ferrari and, and the other Italian manufacturers, Pagani as well, I think, to get an extension to the deadline to go all EV. Um, and now they're saying that they're banking on the synthetic fuels to... Uh, to keep their hero models alive. It makes a lot of sense. These brands, these particular brands, Lamborghini, Pagani, uh, Ferrari, their whole USP is the sound their engine makes, the thrill of going through the revs. When they become, inevitably, as they must, another electric manufacturer, their entire USP evaporates because the Tesla, you could argue, is faster than most Ferraris now. The common garden Tesla that you see running on Dubai streets. So why would you buy a Ferrari? Obviously, the brand. Mm. But for them, they're banking on e-fuels to keep those V12s and V8s and V6s now running as long as possible. And of course, they're all linked to the to Porsche, who is developing this as a whole. So they have a vested reason, except Ferrari, of course. But yeah, e-fuels will keep it going. Whether it'll achieve mass market manufacturing, I'm a little skeptical because it's quite yeah. a big ramp up from where they are now. It's basically a hobbyist thing to, okay, we're going to start producing it en masse for the entire world. Yeah, well, see, Pagani being a very small manufacturer... 
they said that they actually put the brakes entirely on producing EVs. They said, no, we're not going to do it. Then they retracted that statement within hours saying, well, we, we, we're just going to do a little bit because they're a small company. And the the cost, you know, as we were talking before, $35 billion from, from the big guys, RGM, um, as one example, the cost is is, is not insignificant. I to, don't see to go Pagani EV. existing beyond the end of the electric vehicle. Unless they partner with someone. They're going to get bought as, by Rimac or somebody. Well, and yes, classic example, I was just about to say, Bugatti has obviously sold out to Rimac for pretty much that reason. And they're part of a big company. They're part of the Volkswagen group. So well, Everybody's going to be a part of the Volkswagen group the way things are going. <laughs> That's the way it's going to be. Absolutely. Um, te- uh, text message coming in. Great show. I always listen. Uh, this is from, from Finn. Um, I used to live near Normans Park in Bromley, Kent. And they held the largest one-day car show in the world. Have you been? I can say, Finn, no, I haven't been, but uh, I do love a good car show. And, oh, my goodness, I'm speaking to the guy who organised the biggest we car show in organize. the region, didn't you? We also used to organise. Now, of course, there are lots of lovely people like Flat 12 who have taken the baton on from us. But at the point, we have done the biggest car shows in the region. How it many was, cars was that down in Festival City? Oh, it was about 3,000 people and 1,000 cars. This is the Motoring Middle East big show. Way back in the day, this is 2012. <laughs> yes. Uh, a lot of nippers running around then. It was amazing. Um, I always give, say, give a thanks to any organizer you see walking by because it's a tough day for them. It's fun for you guys. But car shows in general, I wonder what the future of car shows is. I think it's going to be specialized into, for example, something like Radwood in the yeah. US, which is 80s and 90s cars only. Yeah. Just making smaller well, sections. Cars and coffee kind of thing works, but anyway. This is Motor Mania, and I'm uh, still joined, of course, by Imtashan Giado, the partner at Motoring Middle East. Now, a couple of little uh, news stories that popped up during the week, Imtashan. This one went viral on Reddit here in the UAE. A user said that his car was at the was at the mechanic when in the middle of the night he received a message saying he committed a traffic violation in Ajman and was hit with four black points, and yet he was asleep and clearly wasn't in Ajman. Um, I think we've been there before. I have. Uh, what should he do? Should some users some users say should investigate, then go to the police? Some say confront the mechanic. Um, I'd like to know has this happened? Has this happened to you? Have you got a fine when you know you weren't driving a vehicle? It's a tricky one. Um, I think my dad got a fine once uh, on somewhere. I think it's a three eleven for going at like 130 or 140. My dad has never gone over 100 in his life. (laughs) So he went to the traffic police uh, and successfully argued it and they removed the fine because the camera had taken a picture of the wrong car or car that was nearby. But yeah, there's no way my dad's gone anywhere near 140. In this case, obviously talk to authorities first. Then speak and have a very interesting conversation with your dealership slash mechanic because they need to come up with a very good reason why that car has been there Mm. Been driven in that manner, and if not, they need to give you some compensation. I would insist on it, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been in this situation. I've well, I was um, flying back from a from a car event somewhere. I turned my phone on. I was in an airport lounge in Chicago or something, and it said that I've just been caught speeding. Nice, <laughs> and, and, and nice. the car was buried deep underground and uh, not being used. And so when I I went to the police and brought that up, I mentioned it to them because the thing is, is the, the photograph takes a takes an image of the license plate and not the surroundings and so i'm not sure whether someone just used my license plate to submit it on behalf of someone else or what the situation was but anyway look they looked at it they saw the air ticket they saw my itinerary and said okay clearly wasn't you and uh and it was it was erased so you know no issues with that one um 
Another report suggests that you are more likely to be involved in an accident on the Uwe's roads in the early afternoon and early evening during the summer months. Now, this comes from us from uh, from Tokyo Marine, the auto insurers who teamed up with Road Safety UAE to analyse the September, the July to September motor insurance claims from last year. Their findings show that the periods between 12 p.m. and 8 p.m is the most likely for an accident with peak times last summer between uh, 12 p.m. and 2 p.m. and then again 6 p.m. through to 8 p.m. The data showed that 30 to 40 year old motorists were the most vulnerable with uh, a, a mixture of, of of backgrounds, Indian, Emirati, Egyptian, Pakistani, Filipino, the top five nationalities involved with 49% of accidents being the fault of other road users. Now they say they studied almost two and a half thousand motor insurance claims which showed that half of accidents involved in that 30 to 40 range group, whilst um, while 45% were the fault of the other road users. Interesting one. Now, before we start getting text messaging about picking out nationalities, <laughs> I would like to make it very clear. I was clear. warming up for that Saturday. I'm curious to see what you're going to say. Go on. <laughs> make it very clear that percentage-wise, there are probably more of those nationalities on the road than others because they are professional drivers, whether they're driving delivery vans, courier oh, vans, just taxis, more of those Ubers, people. or trucks, or there's more of them around. So they're more likely to be those nationalities. I really, I'm just going to stand on my soapbox. I don't see the point of breaking down by nationality or making generalizations like that. It's absurd. Uh, on the other points, I think the data is quite interesting. It's mm. definitely quite interesting. I think it's some, and we used to, if you remember back not too long ago when, when Ramadan was, was right in the peak of summer, it was a real no-go zone, wasn't it, to, to stay off the roads? Ramadan's always tough because you have people who are fasting. And you can't, by the way, looking at the car, work out who's fasting or not fasting, <laughs> just like you can't work out the nationality of the person driving it. But it is tricky. I mean, in those times of day, just try to avoid being on the road because people are either in a rush or they're slightly low blood, blood sugar, which is a bad idea. But the time, 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock, most accidents, isn't that when people are going home, i.e. the most volume of traffic is on the road, i.e. the most accidents? Yeah. So that just explains itself, doesn't it? Yeah. You're going to have the most... Mi- and again, we're talking about the style of accident. Sorry, style. The grade of accident. It could be a minor fender with a headlight or it could be like a major smash-up. What are we talking about? We need to get more granular with the data. What was the other timing? Two to three? Uh, yeah, two, two till six p.m. Two till six and six late. Hang on, so it's just so two till eight. Two to... Hang on, I'm, I'm digging back out. Uh, no, it's from, from midday till two p.m. and then from six to eight p.m. Midday till two is interesting. Mm. I think that's because at midday to two... And we have a similar problem, bizarrely, in the desert. At that time of day, the sun's directly overhead. It's extremely difficult to see, especially yeah. if you're not wearing polarized sunglasses, which a lot of people aren't. So it's hard to judge distances. Which we can't see shadows in the desert. And I imagine it's probably not the best time. It's the hottest part of the day. Maybe that's it. That's but just my theory. Also, too, it's a school run time as well. Again, peak traffic hours. Yeah. So it's, not a, it's a bit of a non-story. Yeah. Roads <laughs> are busy. Traffic accidents happen. Absolutely. Now, getting back to, I'm going to loop back to your uh, your drive recently down to Salala and tie that into the floods that we had last week here in Fajera, <laughs> because you did go through a bit of rain. Um, now, it's a fantastic place to go off-roading. We love it. We go camping. We go off-roading. But the weather, honestly, and, and I said to Matthew Davison in the first hour, I find it crazy that there are some people who are camping in waddies in summer um, when we've got this issue, obviously, when, we, when it floods and rains. And uh, and just, you know, driving in general during this time of year, you've got to be careful when you see the clouds. You think it's fine here and you think you see a few clouds, but you go an hour out of here into, say, Ajman, and uh, you're in the middle of a flood zone. The safest place to be, bizarrely, is the desert. 
because the desert doesn't have floodplains, doesn't have wadis. When you're out there camping, and anybody who's been out in the rocks knows that the situation can change very quickly and very dramatically. So a lot of people go out there because they think it's a bit of fun. But mm. you could end up in a really bad situation. And obviously, there have been fatalities almost every year as a result of rain. These people don't have the right experience. And it doesn't matter, by the way, what car you have. You could have that brand new Hummer EV. You could have a Raptor. You could have a Prado. It doesn't make a difference. When the rain comes, your car is a pebble in the sea. Absolutely, uh, for sure. I mean, all you have to do is you've got to get a couple of inches of water. It lifts the car off the ground, and then you're a boat. Then you're a, you're a boat without you're a canoe without a paddle. Um, and this is what people need to understand: is that if you see a sign of that, just stay away from from even you know like crossings that go through floodways and that sort of thing because you it becomes unpredictable you don't know how the car's going to react and it's not just the wadis it's also the roads as we saw from the terrible pictures coming out of Fujairah a lot of the roads were affected roads mm. broke bridges broke I mean when I was in Salala there was a bridge that was washed away near the beach yeah so these situations can when in doubt be careful and don't go there because you think it's a fun thing to do. Be, be aware that it's a life-threatening situation. And if you're running big desert tyres, big 37-inch rims, that's a lot of inflated air in a rubber buoyant tyre. So it becomes effectively, again, it becomes a Wonderful canoe. a pontoon boat. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yes, do be careful out there if you're going for a drive and you see some clouds in the distance. And uh, Having said that, do go down to Fujairah and support the local businesses. They need every bit of help you can sure. to get back on their feet. So make sure you go down there and shop in their nice, uh, eat in the restaurants and shop in their malls. And if you're going to go out there, just be respectful. It's, it's a terrible tragedy. So don't go there taking pictures and taking selfies. Just It's a terrible thing. That's yeah. it. The, the Emirate is still recovering very slowly. Absolutely. Good, good advice. Good advice. Um, now, another point that, that popped up this week, Rolls-Royce. Going to the other end, going to the other extreme, they've opened uh, what they call a private office in Dubai. Now it's the only one outside the UK, and uh, it's the it's a, a dedicated client meeting space. It's the only one out, said outside the UK. It's um it's a place where customers can go, choose the exact specifications of the new vehicle with a UAE based expert team on hand to offer advice in the process. Now prior to this, um, if because the thing is, it's a what I would love to do one day, if I ever had that kind of wealth, which I doubt, is spec a car from scratch and say, I want everything in a particular order. And I think just to go through that process, you visit the factory, you walk down the line, you you sit with the people and you say, I want that type of timber, I want that type of leather. And the, Well, not everyone can do that now, especially post-COVID. So what they've done, they've set this office up in Dubai that has all the timber types there all the leather types there and you can make the decision on your car virtually um, instead of flying out to their headquarters in in goodwood now uh, it can be a particular type of timber maybe from your from a tree that you that you've had to fell in your own property for whatever reason the seat upholstery the colors based on anything um, at the moment rolls-royce claim there are 44,000 different hues but you can choose your own um, the whole lot. I mean, would you go to that extent? So why do people customize cars? Um, for example, I painted my vintage Land Cruiser, uh, basically BMW orange. Mm. And not just because I want it to be seen on the road. It's a very good way of not being hit by a car if they can see you coming. And I also put gold wheels on it because that looks just ridiculous. And why not? Why do you customize a car and not buy one off the shelf? Why do you buy an off, not off the shelf suit? You want to tell a story. Yeah. And that's kind of what these cars are. We took I mean, a very good example right now about the tree. Somebody says tree off their property, whether it's suitable or not. Uh, I don't know if Rolls-Royce would actually use it, but they probably incorporate elements of it into the car. They're telling a story that they tell to their friends. They're like, look, this is a tree from my property. This is a piece of color that my wife really likes on one of her dresses. 
this is something that you know I coordinate myself with. So it becomes more personal to you as opposed to just buying something that anybody with money can go in and walk and walk in and buy. Mm. Similar with my car, the BMW is a tribute to my old BMW M3, which I had oh, about ten years ago. So again, yeah. I not not everybody else knows about it, but I know about it. So most people are like, why would you paint that color? Because I'm telling myself a story every time I drive it. So that's why you do it. Would I do it with a Rolls Royce? No. And the reason for that is very simple. I don't have taste. And I want somebody <laughs> from Rolls Royce. Yes, you do. I've seen the I've seen the Land Cruiser. I love the color. Thank you very much. You're very kind. <laughs> but that was a lucky. You can you can always hit an arrow once in a while in the dark. Um, I would like somebody with impeccable taste and you know lives in a castle to design my car and come up with a beautiful color and come up with something I haven't seen before. I'd like to see what they can do. But I understand that people out here like to customize absolutely everything, so it's mm. the perfect place for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that one as well. And uh, next up, we're going to be talking about the car that everyone will be talking about very soon, the new all-electric Hummer. We've been teasing this for a while, but I did have a a recent visit to Detroit where the guys from General Motors showed me around. Let me get behind the wheel of the all-new Hummer EV, plus a couple of other electric vehicles that are coming our way. Um, The priority of a very short trip was to jump behind the wheel of as many cars as I could, and uh, and the Hummer is that one, because it's going to lock out the order books when it goes on sale here early next year. Now, there's no price indications yet for the region, but in the US, it starts at 111,000 US dollars. So that's over 400,000 dirhams. In the Shan, I believe you're telling me they're going for, well, potentially a whole lot more than that here. There are a couple of cars running around that are grey imports and they're asking over a million dirhams. Yes. Yeah, so let's see how that goes. Uh, now, basically, what. what Profitably, I think. And <laughs> a nice profit, too. It's powered by uh, a 24 module um, uh, battery pack that's the Ultium platform, 213 kilowatt hours. Uh, it's the same battery architecture that underpins the new Cadillac Lyric that's coming. So it powers one motor in the front and two motors in the rear. It has a range, uh, they say, of 530 kilometres. Um, the battery pack itself weighs 600 kilos, so it's not light. It's a two-step uh, battery pack. But get this, it delivers a reported 1,000 brake horsepower and it delivers 1,630 newton metres of torque, which is probably what you need to tow a 747, I think. Um 800-volt electrical architecture with a 350-kilowatt fast-charging capability. Now, if you have that, GMC claims that it will add 160 kilometres of range in just 10 minutes. Um, there are many different modes on, on board as well. But I, I had the chance to sit with the vehicle dynamics engineer, Jim Green, who ran us through the, uh, the many modes and introduced us to the Hummer EV. Obviously, the first thing you see in the vehicle is fairly conventional controls layout that actually is a little misleading because there's a number of features that are kind of available to the driver i'll walk you through the moding first uh, the center knob on the center console here if you twist that left or right that'll take you through the different modes that are available to the driver uh, so the driver can select a mode uh, such as normal mode which is what you use during your normal day-to-day driving it's a good balanced performance and efficiency suitable for on-road during the summer but also off uh, on-road Uh, during winter driving. Um, The next mode up is my mode. My mode is pretty unique because it actually allows the driver to customize different features on the vehicle. Uh, You can customize the calibrations that we use for steering, suspension, uh, acceleration, which is actually uh, a way the driver can change their total torque and power level. Sound, uh, if you prefer one mode's noise, uh, motor noise versus another. The next mode up is off-road mode. Off-road mode is a mode that's really intended for use in the more high-speed, dynamic driving that you might find in deep sand or gravel. 
Terrain mode is our, our the mode that we'd recommend for low-speed technical uh, events like rock crawling or steep grades, where that torque placement and precision and control is real critical. And then last mode that we have is actually tow haul. And tow haul is something that you'd select if you were towing, you know, in this case, your Saturn V rocket. Uh, so if you have a heavy load or, or a large camper or something like that, that gives you optimal performance for both torque but also for stability. Yeah, so that was uh, Jim Green, the vehicle dynamics engineer for Hummer going through that. Yeah, the Saturn V rocket connection is that there's a big picture of a Saturn V rocket on the console because the car carries a, a moon theme through it, the, moon, the moonscape kind of thing, uh, because General Motors, long history with with NASA, just having a bit of fun with that one. Um, it wouldn't be a petrol tank, would it? No, it's not, because they did, they did the EV that was on the Saturn, on the Apollo 15. Uh, the, the engineers, but also if you go back, going right back to Apollo Eleven, they handed out Corvettes left, right, and center to to the to the Moon Mission guys. Were so, the electric Corvettes? No, they weren't. They were four twenty sevens, I think, or something like that. Um, but what we did then after this is we uh, we tried out the launch control, and uh, and I'm not kidding you, it's called the WTF mode, which they say is what's to freedom, um, zero to hundred kilometers an hour in three point one seconds. Now you'll hear I recorded this as we as we took off, and you can test, you can time it for yourself. We did it in four point nine seconds with three passengers and on loose gravel whilst wearing thirty five inch all terrain. Goodyear tyres, um, and then after that, we did the downhill brake regen test, and it, uh, you'll you'll be able to hear that too. You can use one pedal if needed, so there's no need for downhill assist, and uh, yeah, it made made for interesting uh, interesting driving. That was sixty miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, this truck. We don't have official numbers on gravel. There's other modes you can put it into. To get better times, we're faster zero to sixty than many cars are on road mm. and driving. Um, it's impressive how much dirt, sand, gravel comes out from behind the, the rear axle when you launch. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Sam is using it. it's because it's, it's motor and wheel. Is that right? Is it not not motor and wheel? It's a drive unit in the center. Drive unit. Okay. Half shafts. The real benefit though is with the electric motors, you have very little latency in that response. So there's no waiting for a transmission. There's no waiting for a shift point or a torque converter to wind up. Yeah. It's nearly instantaneous torque. So on a steep dune climb, the real benefit of the motors is that halfway up, if you find that you haven't carried enough momentum to climb that hill, you can dip into the power that we've got, and it's just instant torque and it completes climb. That's right. It really gives you better performance, but also lets you be a little more controlled, so you don't have to carry all that speed, anticipating the, the latency in that, that normal engine and transmission response drive up this is a great opportunity to see the camera views you can do the split screen like we had earlier or the single view here and this really gives you that nice view as a driver where you can see up and over these obstacles that you normally so that's great because all i'm seeing right now is just a a hood into the sky and uh that gives you the the view of what's what's below okay so we can regen with that oh interesting so it doesn't have like a downhill assist as such it's just with the regen yep so we can actually do that we'll use the l here rather than paddle yeah. Um, and the driver has a number of different selectable regen levels. So yep. drive, you get kind of a normal level of regen that's meant to mimic the mechanical system or engine that you'd find like a normal truck. Mm. When you go to L, there's an increased level of regen that comes out of that where um, I find L to actually be very comfortable driving because it allows me to essentially come to a, a low speed with really never leaving the, uh, 
accelerator pedal. With the regen pedal, it actually brings the car to a stop. So yeah, so on Heiko, if you're on level ground, the regen pedal actually will bring it to a stop and hold it. Mm-hmm. The driver can also go to one pedal drive, and there's two different levels of one pedal drive where it'll automatically do the stop for the driver. Between regen and one pedal, most drivers are going to kind of find their preferred mode and live in that all of the time. Yeah, so that was a brief run in in the car, um, and uh, yeah, you, you could see how the the acceleration was was really impressive considering it's so violent. It was. It really was. It was. Su- it was generally supercar quick, under five seconds on my own stopwatch based on that audio itself. But then we got to the fun stuff: the crab mode. The crab mode on this vehicle. It what it does. It uses four wheel steering to let the car move sideways and drive diagonally at low speeds. So if you've if you tried to, to negotiate a trolley and spinnies and it just wants to go at forty five degrees when you're trying to go straight ahead, that's what it's like. <laughs> but it's ideal for say large rocks or obstacles in tight ravines where the front wheels clear it, but then you risk puncturing the rear wheel. So you can just turn the turn the wheels all parallel and it the car moves sideways. Um, the the rear wheel steering it moves by up to ten degrees, and uh, there's one degree rear wheel steer for every one degree of front steer angle, which cuts the turning circle down by two meters. Now this gives it a turning circle about the size of a Honda Civic. So it's a it's a wow it's a spinning car park superstar. Yeah, phenomenal. I mean, we did a three sixty degree turn on a very very narrow piece of country road. Um, did it no problem. I would argue tighter than any front wheel drive car that I know of. Um, so yeah, interesting stuff. So then we did wrap it up. Of course, we did have to do a speed run. Yeah, this truck is very comfortable driving and gravel and sand. Mm. Um, the first trip that we made after our winter development, we went down to Yuma. We have a gravel handling course there. And I came out of a corner sideways at about 90 miles an hour. <laughs> I hit 100 and I realized I have to think about braking points on our gravel course. Yes. I've never had to do that in any other vehicle. And that was when the light bulb kind of went off and was like, oh, this truck was made for this. Because it's Again, it's, it's, it's like all EVs, it's deceptive. You don't realize the speed you're doing until you're there. Yeah. But, I mean, power, the ease, the torque of delivery, the three motors give us high level of control there. So it's yeah very comfortable to drive at that. Yeah, so after you got out of the car, then had the chance to speak to the Senior Vice President of General Motors International, Shilpan Aman, who described why General Motors decided to bring back the Hummer to start with, the brand itself, and also why they decided to make it an electric vehicle and, in effect, be the torchbearer for uh, for General Motors' $35 billion, yep, $35 billion investment in electric vehicles. We wanted to redefine the Hummer to be something more when we think about sustainability and leaving the world in a better place than what we left it. So I think leading off with the Hummer to demonstrate our capability and the fact that you don't have to make trade-offs in your experiences in the vehicle. And we've actually added many more functionalities and experiences and capability to that product than we had in the past. But now it's done under an EV platform that's done in a sustainable way. Yeah, and the thing is with EVs now, the development time is now massively reduced because because they use what is called a, a skateboard chassis. Essentially, it means it's one platform. In this case, it's, it's the Ultium platform, they call it, which houses the batteries and the wheels. It connects them together with the motor all, all together in one unit, and you plug the body on top. Um, here's how he describes how it cuts down the development time. The nice thing about when we've designed and developed these platforms 
the time between bringing on even the initial one to start a regular production from when you design and develop it to start a production has tremendously reduced from an ice and combustion engine. So what used to take us five years, you know, the Hummer we've done under under two years. We'll be able to bring to market quicker when we learn of a customer insight and a pain point and want to resolve it. We can design, develop it, bring it to market so quickly that you're still at the heart of when those customers need that type of product. Now, what, what that means, of course, as well, is that we no longer will have region-specific cars. We won't have cars made for North America, cars made for Asia, left-hand drive cars, right-hand drive cars. I mean, they'll still be left and right-hand drive, of course, for the market, but it means that every car will be available virtually for every market, made as a single unit, and then very quickly adapted to left and right-hand drive. Here's the exciting part of a purpose-built electric platform framed up from our Altium battery systems into a product portfolio that applies for everyone. No longer do you have to design and develop unique engines and transmissions and go through calibration and fuel development. As you take these products around the world, we can efficiently now just scale these products and make them available around the world. The other part of this is the conversion between left-hand drive and right-hand drive becomes still something we have to design and develop up front into the architecture, but much more simple when you don't have an engine sitting in front of you that limits your ability to uh, provide these products with right-hand drive. And then the applications, as we design an electric vehicle portfolio for everyone with the layers of software and and, uh, capability on top, you can now personalize it much easier as you bring that application around the world. Yeah, so finally, the future potential of, of EVs with from GM's side of things. We said $35 billion investment. Their plan is to sell 1 million electric vehicles annually by 2025, and they're through releasing over 30 new EVs into the market in that time. Now, this big SUV, the Hummer, opened GM's Factory Zero, which is uh, at Hamtrak, um, Detroit, and that follows a $2.2 billion makeover to build all-electric trucks in there. There's also going to include, and I had a quick look at it, the Silverado, fully electric Silverado, and also a fully electric Sierra Denali. Uh, the Cadillac Lyric that uses that same platform, well, that's going to be built at a different place, at Tennessee, and we're going to cover our first drive of the Lyric soon in a future show. So we'll, um, we're also going to have, I'm hoping, a very special guest in the studio for that one. So I actually think as you experience these the portfolio of EVs, you're going to recognize different fulfillment in what it brings. As the software layers come on, as autonomous vehicles come on, semi-autonomous vehicles come on, connectivity uh, comes along with it. And I think the customers are about to redefine where they want to be in a product line. And so we're building a broad range of uh, products that now are globally scalable so we can we can be agile enough as the customers define where they want to be. It's actually hard to predict until you actually experience these products how you actually value everything that comes along with So that was Shilpan Armand, Senior Vice President of General Motors International, and this is Motormania. We're talking about uh, Bentley to find about their luxury car brand's carbon neutral goals. Bentley is going fully sustainable. They're launching a plan called Beyond 100, which is a pretty ambitious plan that they've uh, they've outlined. The luxury car brand is pouring millions into this and uh, has some aggressive initiatives to make this happen. They include, of course, fully electric models, a carbon neutral factory, and they're working with governments around the world to support this goal. But will its customers get on board with the changes and want to drive an electric Bentley? 
Well, I spoke to the boss of Bentley in the MENA region, Richard Leopold. He is the regional director of the UK, the Middle East, Africa and India uh, the other week, uh, the other day rather. And uh, I asked him firstly about the brand's plans to go carbon neutral here in the region. You know, this is a new, a new subject, particularly in the Middle East. So uh, the first thing is uh, doing the assessments, understanding what impact you have as a business on the environment. And that includes obviously using the cars, transportation, electricity consumption, gas, oil consumption, etc. What we're doing this year in the Middle East is getting a port done for each of the sites and then looking at firstly offsetting those carbon emissions you know, through a certified uh, credits program. But more importantly, it's about saying, okay, where is the consumption taking place in your operations and what activities and measures can you take to reduce the year-on-year footprint? We're less interested in doing the offset program. We're more interested in understanding how we can actually reduce the footprint over time. We did that in the UK last year. They've already applied a lot of the learnings and best practices at the retailers, and it's quite fun. You know, the, the, the retailers engage together, share their best practice. It could be anything from water bottles to the use of, of different fleets for transportation etc yeah so the next thing of course asking about uh, carbon neutral synthetic fuels that's becoming a bit more of a talking point by the week and is that something that they are looking at using already our operations on, on site are uh, using synthetic fuels in fact when we did the pikes peak last year I don't know if you know that, but the GT was running on synthetic fuel. We have experience on this subject. Probably, what was that, 12 years ago, we did have 100% flex fuel on all our vehicles. We were probably a little far ahead of the game at that point, um, but we were quite interested then in in bioethanol. It was was more the uh, biofuels as opposed to synthetic, but the same approach. You're creating a fuel for the car. That, that doesn't have the fossil fuel impact. We're actually quite familiar with it in the vehicles, so we're monitoring it. The challenge we had previously was, was simply the infrastructure. So we prepared all the cars. In fact, it was 100% of the vehicles had flex fuel technology. Not many people know that. And then we were saying to the governments around the world, OK, can you step up and, and, and get the fuel out there? And there wasn't the momentum behind them. Yes, we have pockets, Scandinavia, Brazil, of course, Sweden, which is where, where I lived and one of the reasons why we, we tried it out. We say very few markets. So the reality is, is you go with the technology uh, that, that, is, that is of choice. And at the moment, that's clearly electrification. Yeah, so the talks are ongoing with Dubai and Abu Dhabi municipalities uh, about their charging infrastructure, as it is with a, a lot of importers and distributors here. Uh, but Bentley has a has a reason to, uh, to to push ahead further because they're introducing their first battery electric vehicle into the Middle East in 2026, and so not too far away. Um, and then I guess the question we had to ask was, how do you deal with customers who are used to the current Bentley? Bentley customers are traditional customers getting to, do, to come to terms with new technology. How do you say that your next car won't be a uh, twin-turbocharged V8, but will be electric? The car needs to be a Bentley. So absolutely it needs to be the best it can be, the pinnacle of automotive, uh, when we move to the, uh, a different drivetrain. So yes, you will see still the craftsmanship in the vehicles. Uh, it will still have the effortless performance that you'd expect with a V8 or a W12. Um, so we don't wish to compromise the performance or luxury. In fact, we'll, we'll do more of and probably focus even further on the interior environments, etc. 
which with the BEV cars, you know, become more spacious and, and you have that luxury of space there. So it's definitely just evolving it. We have tested it though. You know, we did do the EXP 100 GT two years ago. That was electric. And we presented that to customers and said, well, what, what do you think? And of course, first of all, they're overwhelmed by the design of the car, the amazing interior, the potential benefits of things like autonomous drive. If it drives as it should drive, I'm open. I think we did a survey recently and already over 25% are saying they would want their next car to be electric. And we expect that to go up very rapidly now. Yeah, interesting stuff. Now, of course, with that comes uh, major redevelopment of the factory there at Crew. If anyone's been there, you'll understand that, yeah, this is a factory that used to build um, Bentley and Rolls-Royce going back to pre-war times. So major investment at the new facilities at Crew. And he says that if I went back now, I probably wouldn't recognise the place. As we transition to Bev, we're actually building a new factory uh, assembly line. You may have heard us talk about it as the dream factory. Mm. What that is is a much more flexible way to build vehicles. So you don't have the traditional line at a fixed pace. What you have is these robots taking individual vehicles through a chain of activity. And so what that allows you to do is if you've got a car that's got more bespoke and needs a lot of extra work on it because of the customer choice element, that car can just come off the line, go elsewhere, have Mulliner seats fitted, different bodywork if necessary, and then it can rejoin the line. That is probably the biggest challenge we have today with bespoke vehicles is that you either have to go to the car and bring your bits and pieces that are different and and follow it at its pace uh, or take the car when it's finished and do a bit of a rebuild, which isn't ideal. It's autonomous robots, yeah. And it also, you know, things like audit checks, quality checks, random checks, you can pull cars off and do things and it's not going to screw up the rest of the cars that follow. It will just rejoin. So it's quite exciting. Uh, it's great if we, we've got some little you know, clip clips, but you can see these cars going around and getting treated. And also, take for example, we, we, we pride ourselves in, in showing the customers the cars, right? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of thousands of customers every year coming to the factory to see their build. Uh, it's probably the, one of the best ways we do upsells because, you know, customers then see the color and choice in front of them. It's great. Um, but you can imagine... You know, one of the challenges today is with customers is, okay, where am I going to find my car and how do I? How do we try to align their visit with where the car is? Because it's not always visible, right? Maybe going through a paint shop, etc. With this case, we can program it and pull the car off to a customer zone to see the vehicle and then it can rejoin. So there's a load of potential uh, with this, this new Dream Factory concept. Yeah, so that was uh, talk about the future and their electric vehicles and everything else. But, of course, as we know, and we've covered it many times on Motormania, there are more uh, pressing uh, needs right now with the industry, supply chain issues due to COVID and various other things. And, uh, of course, I had to get his opinion on that as well, being the man on the ground in the region. We fared very well, remarkably well. In terms of semiconductors, we have the group behind us and there is an allocation method based on vehicle profit. Uh, so we, we are able to secure or have been able uh, to not lose a single day due to semiconductors. Ukraine, obviously devastating for the people of Ukraine, and uh, obviously we hope that, that that's get resolved. We've been working alongside the factories in Ukraine. They've continued to produce at least at 50% of the output. And again, the allocation method within group has favoured Bentley. We've also had no supply stops with the, uh, with the harnesses. So far this year, uh, we've we've delivered 100% of the production plan. Uh, yeah, very few brands that are in that fortunate situation. Uh, it's not easy. 
I suspect there'll be more asteroids coming our way uh, with raw materials. You, you see that as well across the, not just the industry, but, you know, uh, affecting everybody. But so far, we've, we've managed to uh, weather the storm very well. Yeah, and so finally, of course, you couldn't uh, leave the leave the, the showroom down there on Shakeside Road without asking him about the latest models that have just been released here. We've had the S-Range on the Bentayga previously. It's uh, saying in the showroom right now. It's gone down very well because it is it's a nicely priced uplift to our, our standard range. Uh, it's sportier. It looks the part with the black kit. The directional wheels look fantastic in the, in the black and the machine finish. Uh, and it's got the, the, the nice contrast interior with the Alcantara, a bit more grippy uh, as well as the leather. So it is going down very well. Historically, you know, we've sold 25% or so, so about one in four of our models. I expect that to continue on Bentayga. And as you say, we're, we're now introducing that onto the Continental range. Uh, and I think that will be quite a big seller on that as well. Uh, that's for 23 model year. So landing in the region towards the end of this year. And we're also sat in front of a GT Speed, which is our, you know, our pinnacle performance model uh, for the range. Uh, has been very successful in the Middle East. I suspect, uh, well, with our plans, we reckon one, one in three Continentals will be a speed derivative. That is really the, the best of everything for, for Bentley uh, in terms of offering the, you know, the 650 horsepower plus performance with, you know, with a lowered ride uh, and, and a fantastic interior also with the, with the contrast, colour color split. So, no, exciting time for Bentley. Uh, the models have never been as fresh in terms of the portfolio. One of the things that we are doing that, that is new this year is trying to also not just develop the sporty derivatives, make sure we offer cars in the in the luxury, refinement, wellness field. And we've recently communicated an Azure lineup, which is to cater to those uh, customer preferences. That is a derivative or a model, if you like, that will be available uh, on all of our body styles today. Yes, that was uh, Richard Leopold, the Regional Director for Bentley in the Middle East and uh, North Africa as well. Uh, Shan, what's, um let's go back to the off-roading side of things because I know that's, that's where your heart lies. What are your thoughts on, the, on, the, on what you've heard so far about the Hummer? I think the electric off-roading makes the best kind of sense. I mean, the fact that you can dip into the power, as he describes, and get that instant torque is what gets you up the hill. And what's missing sometimes is a little bit of the skill involved to keep an engine on the boil. That just goes away. You just press harder on the pedal and boof, you're up the hill. Um, Is it more fun? I leave that to you to decide. But in terms of capability, it's incredibly hard to ignore. These cars will be the most capable off-road vehicles you can see. And they will probably take over the thing because, to be honest, one of the nice things about off-roading is being at one with nature. And if you don't have a big, dirty engine rumbling in the background, it allows you to get a bit closer to nature, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, you raise an interesting point. Do you think that takes away a little bit of the, the fun for, for a hardcore off-roader to, to not be able to need to, to negotiate a vehicle like you do in the old days? Two aspects to that. First of all, um, it does, but it depends, no, it depends on where you're going. So it does take away the skill. In the same way, it takes away skill from modern fast cars. If you get into a McLaren or the higher end of supercars, for example, you're not driving the cars anymore. You haven't been for ages. It's the electronics and the engineer who's driving the car and just letting you turn the steering wheel and press the pedals. And the same with off-road electric cars. I mean, I want to be democratic here. I think people should be allowed to drive cars regardless of their ability, as long as they don't get into a situation they can't control. But with a modern Ferrari, you can go much, much faster than your talent allows. Mm. Second point that I'm trying to make here, it's all well and good having these systems. But when you're out in the middle of nowhere in Salala, and if something breaks, or if you have an airbag go on your fancy airbag suspension, what are you going to do? I could zip tie and duct tape my suspension and pretty much (laughs) get it back home. I also ran into a guy from Qatar 
who's made 10 trips to Salala in a similar 80 to mine, only 350,000 kilometers, just a nipper of a car. But he keeps driving from Qatar to Salala and back. He loves it. Mm. And the cars never let him down. Well, there you go. Well, that's all we've got time for for uh, for this week on Motor Mania. Thank you so much, Simp Shan. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. Um, also, thank you to Matthew Davison of uh, Algo Driven and uh, General Motors and Bentley for uh, for joining in the chat as well. If you've missed any of today's show or the reviews, head over to the podcast, dubaii1038.com, and look for Motor Mania, and uh, you'll find it all there. We're also replaying today's episode a little later on, so, uh, yeah, do join around, do, do uh, tune in for that one. But in the meantime, we'll be back in two weeks, and uh, thanks again, Nitin Shan, and uh, have a great rest of the weekend.